I know what the confusion was about. We're supposed to sing that after the sermon, but that's okay. We can do it out of order. It won't, it won't hurt. Take your Bibles, please, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 24. Acts 24, and when you found your place, I'm going to invite you once again to stand as we read God's Word together. Acts 24, reading verses 1 to uh, 21, please. The Word of God says, Now after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought charges against Paul to the governor. After Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began accusing him to the governor, saying, Since we have attained great peace through you, and since reforms are being carried out for this nation by your foresight, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you further, I beg you to grant us a brief hearing by your kindness. For we have found this man a public menace and one who stirs up dissensions among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. So indeed, we arrested him. By interrogating him yourself concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we are accusing him. The Jews also joined the attack in discerning that these things were so. But when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than twelve days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and neither in the temple did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself, nor can they prove to you the things of which they now accuse you. In verse 14, but I confess this to you, that in accordance with the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience, both before God and before other people always. Now, after several years, I came to bring charitable gifts to my nation and to present offerings in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who ought to have been present before you and to have been bringing charges if they should have anything against me. Or else have these men themselves declare what violation they discovered when I stood before the council, other than in regard to this one declaration, which I shouted while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. We trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Again, O God, we come before you and we ask you for your help this morning. Father, we pray again, O God, that you would speak and that we would hear. And we ask it simply in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please have a seat. How difficult is it to stand alone against a visibly greater enemy? I think it's something that we all fear. When all our support and all our friends have been separated from us, when the enemies of Christ and his church rise to heights of human strength and numbers and worldly intellect, how do we cope? How will we cope? Will our truthful defense stand against the lies of the enemy? Will our witness for Christ be heard and received and believed? Or will the opposition prevail through sheer force of voice and volume? All of us who know 
and love the Lord Jesus want desperately not to do anything that will bring shame and dishonor to his lovely name. We want badly to be able in that difficult hour to stand firm, to be unshakable, immovable in our faith and defense for the Lord. But how will we? Our text provides us with some illustrations of what is required. Luke is, as you know, continuing his narrative of Christ and his continuing work through the Holy Spirit in and through the lives of his church and his apostles. He records this trial scene to show of Paul, sorry, to show us that the best offense against the enemy is a gospel-driven life. From Acts 13 to midway through chapter 21, Paul has ridden a wave of success, three successful missionary journeys into new areas of ministry. The gospel faithfully proclaimed, explained, and defended. Sorry, disciples made and baptized and added to thriving churches which are being planted, with elders being appointed in every church. Much persecution has been endured for the faith. Stoning and stripes and beating with rods and imprisonment and so on. But from midway through chapter 21, the opposition has steadily increased, resulting in his chains and house arrest and hearings, murder plots, and so on. Now, in chapter 24, verses 1 to 21, Paul stands in an uneven, unbalanced assembly against untrue and unproven accusations to deliver an unwavering answer to those accusations. But why do we need to hear this message from Paul's trial, from the scriptures today? We need to hear it because we need to know how to prepare ourselves for the day when we may, like Paul, have to stand firm against an overwhelming enemy in a situation like his. Jesus actually promised us in a day to come when we're arrested and we have to give an account that we'll be given the words to say in that moment by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit would speak through us. The best offense in that day will be a gospel-driven life, not just words, but a whole life. So first of all, notice very briefly the unbalanced assembly. In verses 1 to 3, we meet Antonius Felix, who presides as judge over the whole trial. According to scholars, Felix was a first was the first slave to gain his freedom and get all the way up to governorship. Uh, Tiberius Claudius, the Caesar of the day, appointed him to his governorship, but uh, not long after this, he was recalled back to Rome by Nero, and although he lost his governorship, he didn't manage to lose his life, so that was something. Felix was described as an ambitious, treacherous, and corrupt man. His was a classic case of colonial mismanagement, including bribe-taking and oppression and cruelty. His rule had been far from peaceful, prosperous, and reforming, as Tertullus will try and say. In verse 1, there's also Ananias, the utterly corrupt high priest. We talked about him a few weeks ago. He was the one so hated by his people that Jewish freedom fighters later hunted him down and killed him and his brother and burned the house to the ground just for good measure. According to some scholars, Ananias had Felix's predecessor recalled to Rome and his assistant was executed. So Felix had reason to be wary of this very powerful, pro-Roman, well-connected Jewish high priest and all his allies standing there. Alongside Ananias were some elders of the Jews and Tertullus himself, the lawyer, who was possibly a Gentile hired by the Jews against Paul. What's noticeably absent from the proceedings are the Asian Jews who initially charged and arrested Paul And even more noticeably absent, as I read the story over and over again, is Paul's Jewish Christian brothers and sisters. Where were all these Jewish believers that they had told Paul about when he first arrived in Jerusalem back in chapter 21? Nowhere to be seen. He stands alone. To the human mindset, this looked like a very unfair fight. Paul seems to be utterly alone. He has no lawyer to defend him. He has no moral support in Christian brothers and sisters. This should have been a snap, open, and shut case for the Jews, ending with his quick death. Seemingly overwhelming odds and an unfair fight. And the truth is, it was indeed an unfair fight for 
Paul's opponents. Filled with the Spirit, the Apostle Paul greatly outnumbers them. It is indeed an unbalanced assembly. And when we perhaps one day stand in Paul's shoes, we will outnumber our enemy as surely as he did. Paul came filled with the Spirit of God, and so will we in that moment. He came armed with the promises of God, and so will we if we ever stand where he stood. He knows he will be given the words to say, so will we. Jesus said in Mark 13, verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you're to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, it is the Holy Spirit. Sadly, lots of preachers have used that verse to excuse uh, lack of studying. That's not what Jesus meant. He meant when you're standing before a government, or a Gentile courtroom, or a charges by those who do not believe in Jesus. That's the moment he's speaking of. Paul already knows this trial before Felix is not his last. He will bear testimony for his Lord Jesus Christ in Rome. He'd been promised that by Jesus in Acts 23 and verse 11. Paul knows one day we will all stand before the infinite holy infinitely holy, absolutely righteous, wise and knowing judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows that whatever this court decides, there is a far greater court to which we must all answer. Paul knows the only judge that we all must trust and fear is the one who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Verses 28 to 33, do not fear those who kill the body, but who are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In verse 32, he said, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. And I'm convinced that Paul knew those things. And stood there that day in those assurances from the Lord's words. Sorry, from the Lord's words. Paul comes armed with great truth that he himself wrote in Romans 8, 31 to 34. This is what he just written on his way into Jerusalem. If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Yes, they might bring charges, but none of them will stand, not in God's court. Who will bring charges against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Those things that Paul had written just weeks earlier as he was on his way into Jerusalem to the believers in Rome, he knew them to be true. They were true for him, it's true for us, for every believer. Whatever our corrupt, treacherous human judges may decide, we have been declared righteous in God's sight, and it's the only court that matters. We appeal to the Supreme Court in this country, don't we? Always hear about it. He's appealing to the Supreme Court. We appeal to the only Supreme Court in all existence, and that's God's court. Whatever laws and lawyers they bring against us, Jesus is interceding and praying for us. We may be found guilty in their courtrooms, but we know for a certainty that we have been declared righteous by God. And whatever they may do to us, they can never separate us from Jesus' love from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul comes armed with the promise of great blessing. He said, um, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 11 to 12, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He stood there knowing knowing that the prophets before him had been persecuted in similar ways, and he had the great blessing of God, knowing he was being numbered in that group. It's true for Paul. It will be true for us. Brothers and sisters in Christ, listen. Remember, 
We always outnumber our enemies when we face them. It isn't always an unfair fight for them. No one shall bring a charge against us that will stand, for God has declared us righteous. Remember that. The promise of blessing for those who are unjustly accused, charged, and spoken evil of for Jesus' sake. That's a tremendous blessing that we stand in that august company. Fourthly, it's not our oratory or legal skills and expertise. It's the Spirit of God who who will give us the words in that moment. It's our gospel-driven life that is our best defense. I don't want to jump to, ch- to point three too quickly, but we'll get to that part. It's been ringing through my head. I, I think I was dreaming about in the middle of the night as I was laying in bed, thinking about that. Notice, secondly, there's an unproven accusations. Quickly, we'll look at this. The scene is set in verse 1, and all the parties are present in verses 2 through 9. Tertullus rises to speak for the prosecution, and beginning with the customary flattery toward the judge. It's simply a way they use to get the judge on their side. By the way, uh, records have that these opening addresses to the judge could go from one to two hours. So what you're seeing here is a brief summary of what he said. And, and, and the flattery to our minds is so nauseating. I kept wondering, is he being sarcastic? Like, is he actually poking at, at, at Felix a little bit? But he, he gives this flattery. It's part of how they began their, their case. And then in verses 5 to 7, Tertullus makes his accusations. Uh, the 1995 uh, NESB reads it like this. For we have found this man a real pest. I like that. Isn't that great? We found him a real pest, a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and he even tried to desecrate the temple. His comment, his first one, is really a summary statement. He's a real pest. What fe- Can't you imagine using that and quoting scripture to somebody? You know? I ha- sorry, I, ha- I have to tell you, a confession's good for the soul. I read that and thought to myself, next time a telemarketer calls me up, I'm going to quote scripture. You're a real pest and hang up the phone. Don't do it. I'm not going to either, but I must admit I was tempted. His first comment is just a summary statement, a real pest. What follows are charges to support that summary statement? And the first charge is he's a rioter. He, a fellow who causes dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. What Tertullus is doing is subtly making a point to Felix that Paul is a destroyer of what was called the Pax Romana. What he was doing is he was saying Paul is guilty of sedition, for which Felix is notorious for crushing with a particular cruelty. Yet it's made without necessary witnesses, the Asian Jews. No one there to support his charge. He just makes it. The second charge, Paul's a ringleader among the Nazarenes, which is undeniable and easily proven. But it's not illegal. You could be a ringleader amongst a group like that. I mean, in all reality, you can look at Ananias and say, well, he's a ringleader amongst the Jews as well. But that's the charge he makes. But that's not all that Tertullus is doing. He's implying by linking rioter and ringleader, Tertullus is attempting to make the case that Paul and all the Christians out there are bent on destroying the peace of Rome and they should all be considered dangerous and stopped permanently, the old-fashioned way. And the historical background of all this has been a number of zealous, dynamic Jews in their time leading insurrections against the Roman authorities. If you go back to 21, I think it is, when uh, Claudius Lysias asks Paul, are you that Egyptian? I found in uh, Josephus, that Egyptian was a fellow about the time of Paul who did exactly what he was talking about. He was one who built up an insurrection and Felix crushed it badly. So, Tertullus makes these charges. He's trying to lump Paul into the same pile as these seditious rebels. Again, the charge is unproven, although it could have been easily proved that Paul was, in fact, a ringleader of the Nazarene sect, but that was not illegal in that time. Thirdly, he's a ravager of temples. Forgive the alliteration. I actually forced the word to make it ravager. There's no such word. But he was a desecrator. What they're saying is he goes into temples and tears things apart. Now, that to us sounds kind of odd until you understand the Roman law that Tertullus is working to bring into play here. 
Roman law evidently granted Jews the right to enforce their ban on Gentile violation of the temple precincts. So if Tertullus had succeeded in proving this charge, Felix would have been obligated to hand Paul over to the Jews and almost certainly to his death. But again, again, the charge is unproven because the witnesses aren't there. The Asian Jews had falsely charged Paul, assuming that because he'd been seen speaking to a Gentile in the streets of Jerusalem, he must have brought that Gentile into the temple courts with him. It's sketchy speculation to come up with a dodgy assumption, and it just didn't work. So Tertullus has made one summary statement, three exaggerated charges, and all of them are unproven by any actual eyewitness. One writer said, it seems as if Tertullus was relying on his skills as an orator and a flatterer to substitute for his lack of evidence and proof. He didn't prove anything in the end, as we all know. So an unbalanced assembly has heard three unproven accusations. And now thirdly, Paul's unwavering answer. And this is what we want to focus on. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, rises to speak. And just, just put your, engage your, your mind's eye for a moment. Put yourself back into that time. Imagine this courtroom, stone everywhere. And there's uh, Felix and all his glory robes of Rome. And all the Jews are all there. And it's like a massive pile of people. And there's one little guy sitting over there on the table by himself. He reminds me of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, I think it was, where he gave an answer to the, the emperor. One little guy there, he's, he's got poor eyesight from years of working. He's got a hobbling gait as he walks because he's been beaten on his back so much, back and legs and upper legs so much that the muscles have all kind of contracted. So he kind of walks along like this, and he comes into the room, and he's him against everybody else. And he rises to speak, and the Spirit of God fills him in that moment, and it's not him who is speaking, but the Spirit of God in him, as Jesus promised. To summarize Paul's defense before Felix, it's an appeal to truth, to the law, but ultimately to a gospel witness in life and words, without which the rest of it would just fall flat. Critical. Notice, firstly, Paul's appeal to truth. He begins with an honest gesture towards the, the governor. No flattery. He simply states the truth. You've been a judge for many years, and so I will cheerfully make my defense before you. Never mind the fact that he knows for a certainty this is not the end of his life. God is not done with him yet. He's going to go to Rome. In verse 11, Paul says he's only arrived in Jerusalem 12 days ago. He is a pilgrim traveling with gifts for his nation. He was not living in Jerusalem, but only briefly staying there. He's now been in Caesarea for five days before that under house arrest in one day, leaving only six days prior to his rest, staying in Jerusalem. In verse 12, Paul said that he had not been found in city, synagogue, or temple carrying on discussion or causing a riot. Felix could easily ascertain that seven to 12 days ago, the only riot was the one started by the Asian Jews at his arrest. And not only that, six days is, not, is just simply not enough time to gather and build a rebellious movement against the Roman authorities. It's not happening. It's impossible. Pilgrims coming to worship are not generally rioters and dissenters. Paul answers their charges with simple, logical, easily provable truth. Jesus' words from a different context are no less true here. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He simply stood there and gave them the truthful answer to it all. Notice his second appeal to the law. In verses 12 and 13, Paul skillfully makes two legal points. First of all, there's no charge to answer. Tertullus has not proved his case. It's like when, you know, you ever watch uh, TV trial drama? I kind of enjoy it. I watch the luck and the lawyers maneuver. And one will stand up and say, move to dismiss the case. The prosecution has not met the burden of proof. Paul could have, I'm not sure it was the same law back then, but actually enough, enough of the laws carry over from then to now, but I kind of wonder if it isn't true. Paul could have stood up and said, he hasn't proved his case. There's nothing to answer. By the way, who in that whole room was engaged in a murder plot a couple days earlier? Ananias. You know what I thought was amazing as I watched that? I read the whole story and kind of watched it in my mind's eye. Paul doesn't get up and say, by the way, uh, Felix, your esteemed governor, 
This guy over here tried to plot for my murder not six days ago. Doesn't come up. He doesn't bring it up. He could have. It would have been an unfounded charge. And the same thing, he would have produced evidence, but he could have done that too, but he didn't do it. Paul appeals to the law. He makes two legal points. There's no charge to answer because Tertullus has not proved his case. If Felix is truly the judge, he's supposed to be, knowing Roman law, he should certainly concede Paul's point and dismiss the charges. Secondly, according to Roman law, the accused had the right to face their accusers, which is the same today, as I understand it. In verse 13, they, he says, they meaning Ananias and the elders themselves, had not found him in the city, in the synagogues, or in the temple, carrying on discussion or or causing a riot. What's he mean? What he's saying is, these guys here, they're not my legitimate accusers because none of them actually saw me doing the things they're saying that I did. And they haven't produced witnesses to prove the case. Tertullus and the Jews' case is entirely based on a hearsay. There's no evidence there to prove it. In verse 18 and 19, the Asian Jews are the only ones who could make a legitimate accusation because they're the only eyewitnesses to the charges. They shouted in the temple, which were known to be false, and they're not present. They ought to have been called. And Paul answers their charges by appealing to the law. The state he was a citizen. He had a right to use that law. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with us using the law to our advantage. Now, we also know at times in his life, Paul put aside his rights for gospel purposes. But when here, he used them. He made the points, which finally brings us to the best part of the whole message. Paul's greatest defense is a gospel-driven life. Paul, in his words here, and Luke, in writing the narrative, both return to a key theme in the whole book. In Acts 1, verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even the remotest part of the earth. Paul seizes this opportunity, filled with the Holy Spirit. He does exactly what you're supposed to do when you're in a trial. What do they say? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So what does he do? I love it. He just seizes the opportunity. I'll give you a witness. You want answers? I'll give you answers. Here they are. And he starts to make his case. He bears witness to the truth of the gospel. He bears witness in particular to the gospel's effect on his life. He bears witness to his own character as defense against their charges. He appeals from a gospel-driven life. Listen, when, when Jesus said... You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Did he simply mean the, the message that comes out of our mouth? You should all be doing this. No, he didn't mean that. What he meant was, you will be my witnesses. He meant in all parts of your life. As you read Paul's words here, one of the things that struck me is he is not just making a declaration of the gospel to them. He's making a declaration based on how he lives his life. His life has been radically changed by the gospel. He is not the person they're talking about in their charges. It's completely different. He's a different man. Main argument of this sermon, this whole message, is the best defense in facing unjust, unfair accusations, which we all face, is the defense of a gospel-driven life, a God-centered life. 1 Peter 2, verses 12 to 15, that's what Peter says. He says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It isn't just speaking right, it's doing right as well. That's what the text shows us. Let's read again. Acts 24, verses 14 to 16. Paul says, But I confess this to you, that in accordance with the way which they call a sect, I do serve or worship the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law 
and is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, and there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and before other people always. We'll leave the reading there. Verse 4, I want you to notice three key statements in that. Verse 14, I serve or I worship the God of our fathers. Verse 15, I have a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. In verse 16, I do my best to maintain a clear conscience before God and man. He's going to go on to talk about how he brings charitable gifts for his people. He's living a gospel-driven life. He's giving, living a God-centered life, and that's his main defense. When they make charges against us, our life that we live by faith, in repentance, that's our main defense. Back to verse the first one, a gospel-driven worship. In verse 14, remembering the, the term the way was an early name for Christ and the church. they got some really cool uh, church names going now. You might have heard some of them. Uh, the way, follow, uh, fire was one I heard just recently. The Way was the oldest, coolest name from the church. It goes right back to before they were called Christians. They were called followers of The Way. I'm not saying we should change our church name. I'm just saying it's kind of a cool name, The Way. You like it. If I were to unpack and expand what he says in verse 14, that in accordance with The Way, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, it would sound like this. According to or in agreement with the gospel of God's salvation from wrath and sin and hell through faith in Christ, I worship God. His gospel, his worship of God isn't based on the Jew system of coming with an animal sacrifice. It's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, who has fulfilled all that Old Testament law stuff. It's still important. It's still critical. We still need the law because it, it describes and relates to us the holiness of God. But it also helps us to see when we've sinned against God. But in accordance with the way, in accordance with Jesus Christ and the gospel concerning him, I worship. The word there is latruo. Some of your versions, I think ESV has the word worship. Some of them have serve. The words are, are very closely related. So worship works and so does serve. And when you think about it, that's a cool way to think about worship, isn't it? It isn't just worshiping. And when we come and we sing praises, our whole lives are to be lived out as a service of worship to God. Glorifying God in everything we do. Paul even takes us to the, to the mundane, whether you eat or whether you drink. Or if you take it in John Piper's terms, you know, whether you eat a piece of toast or you drink a glass of orange juice, do so to the glory of God. Every part of it. The gospel drives and enables and frees him to worship and serve God. He worships God in forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. Christ's suffering and death paid for his sin. He is forgiven. Christ's death and resurrection reconciled him to God. He has peace with God. His worship is no longer based on animal sacrifice, but the finished work of Christ. So is ours, praise God. I love the fact that we don't rock up the church and there's not a great big bonfire outside with an animal on there. Unless, of course, George is doing a spit and then it's okay. It's a different story. But we don't rock up and there's not a big wall here. We don't stand outside the building separated from God with only one of us going in with a rope around his foot in case he makes a mistake and he dies and we can pull him back out again. We come in. We sit. I think... The chairs you sit on are an incredible testimony to our fellowship and relationship with God. We rest in his finished work. We sit as members around a table, the one in front of me, for example, as in fellowship with God. We don't do it the old way. Paul says he worships according to the way. Paul's gospel-based, gospel-driven worship is in agreement and full acceptance of the law and prophets, which as we know from Luke's earlier book, that Jesus opened the scriptures to them and explained to them all the things concerning him found in the scriptures. That's amazing. 
Paul agreed with all the Old Testament. He wasn't denying any of it. Paul was a follower of Jesus Christ, the innocent, holy, and righteous one who died in the place of another rebel robber named Barabbas, who was guilty of sedition. Paul was no rioting and rebellious man to be utterly inconsistent with his faith in Christ and following of Christ to disobey him by rebelling and rioting against Roman authority. His answer to their charges is a gospel-driven life of worship of God in agreement with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wasn't in there to tear the temple apart. He was in there to worship. Second, there's a gospel-driven hope in God. In verse 15, Paul has a hope in God, which is an earnest expectation, an earnest longing, kind of like my longing to be on the plane in the next week and a bit. We want to get out of here. Not that we don't like being here, but, you know, we want to go. I have a hope, a great hope that we will be on that plane next week. What is his hope? His hope that there will be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. What's his hope? that God will raise all mankind to stand before him, to be judged by him for all we've done in this life, good or bad. He's going to talk about this with Felix in private in the next part of the chapter. But Paul writes, he wrote already in, in his case, in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 and 10, he says this, Therefore we have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. If you were only doing bad, would you hope for the resurrection of the unjust? No, you'd want to stay firmly in the grave, where you're probably safer. Uh, The old story told... um, a friend of mine is a preacher back in Canada. Uh, he's, I think I might, I might have told you the story already. If I, if I have, forgive me. Um, he was sent to the little local shop, the corner shops, with some money to buy some food. And he went down there, and he had a little bit of money. His dad was a traveling preacher. Uh, he later became a very powerful preacher. This is Jabe Nicholson. And uh, his mom had said, go buy me a loaf of bread and some milk and so on. And he went down there, and he, he bought the stuff. And as he bought the stuff, he paid with the money she'd given him. And the shopkeeper wasn't really paying attention and gave him back way more change than he was supposed to. And he said he, he was standing there with the money in his hand and the milk and the bread. And he was wondering, what do I do now? I could buy candies. I could buy pop. I could buy whatever I want. I could spend this money. I'll give my mom back the change and nobody will know. He said right as he's standing there in the middle of the shop with the money in his hand, debating what to do, he heard the door behind him open and a little bell jangle as they used to do, you know. And he looked around. He said, there was my dad coming, walking in the shop behind him. He said, I love my dad, but I did not love his appearing at that particular moment. It was just an untimely moment. And, of course, he did the right thing. He gave the money back and and so on. That's the point, isn't it? We love the Lord. Do we love his appearing? If we're walking and living an unjust, ungodly, not gospel-driven life, we will not love his appearing. Paul says, I have a hope in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, because when he appears, I know I'm going to hear that great verdict, you belong to me. I'm going to hear the verdict of God that I am one of his sheep, not one of his goats to be cast out. That's why Paul loved and had a hope in the resurrection of the dead. The unjust, sorry, if Paul was guilty of all the crimes that they were laying, if Paul had no hope of salvation through faith in Christ, the very last thing he would want or hope for would be the resurrection of the just and the unjust because he would be declared unjust and so condemned to hell. The unjust can only look forward to God's judgment and condemnation. Paul was no rioter. He was causing no dissensions and sedition. He lived in hope of God's resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He lived in hope because he had been declared just by God's grace through his faith in Christ. So he said to Titus in Titus 3, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that 
being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He was justified, and so he had a hope, a great hope. Brother and sister in Christ, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a great, great hope in the appearing and the return of Jesus Christ, our Savior. A hope to see him on that day and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't know about you, but the older I get, I just got a bit older yesterday. I suddenly, I, I'm looking forward to it more and more and more. <laughs> you know. Moving on. Thirdly, there's a gospel cleansed and maintained conscience. We talked about the conscience a few weeks ago. But because Paul has access by God's grace through faith to worship the Lord in full forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God, and because he has a hope in God for the resurrection of the just and the unjust, it has affected how he lives his life. He strives to maintain a clear conscience before both God and men. A conscience is that God-given faculty to discern between right and wrong. It's our self-knowledge, our understanding of our own actions and motives and words and thoughts based on the moral compass provided by God. It operates according to the law of God written on the heart in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. One great blessing of coming to God by faith in Christ is that our conscience is washed clean in Christ's blood as we are forgiven of sin. And brother and sister in Christ... As we know, for the ones here this morning who who have never heard the gospel and never trusted in Christ or never trusted in Christ, let me tell you, there is no peace ever to be experienced on this earth like the peace of a clean, clear conscience before God. Every, not every, but many of the the biographies of great men of God I've read as they describe their conversion and their salvation have also the same thing. As I trusted the Lord, there was just a peace in my life. Nikki Cruz, uh, anybody here know that name? Yeah, I feel you do. Uh, Nikki Cruz was one of the men that was reached with the gospel by David Wilkerson in New York City back in the 1950s. Nikki Cruz lived most of his uh, early teenage and, teenage and late teenage life plagued by terrifying dreams. He types about in his book. Uh, his father did some pretty horrific things to him in discipline when he was a young man. And he said he lived in dreams, these horrible dreams. He lived in torment. He said the night that he trusted Christ, and he picked up, they had a box of Bibles. And apparently they had little tiny ones. They had some big ones like, like this one. And he picked one of the big ones up, and he carried it home with him. And he sat in his bed, and he read as much as he could almost all the way through the night. And he lay down, and he went to sleep, expecting the usual dreams. And there were none. And he had a tremendous sense of peace Brother and sister in Christ, we have peace because our conscience has been washed clean by the blood of Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you something. You'll never know peace like the peace of God as you come and confess your sin and are forgiven and cleansed. But imagine for a second if Paul, having claimed to live, sorry, to believe in Christ, but had also lived a hypocritical life like Ananias and like Felix standing before him. Imagine if those inconsistencies had been brought out in the trial. Paul's defense would have fallen flat on its face, on his face. It must highlight to us what he's saying here. Because of all those other things, his hope, and because of his worshiping God the way he does, he says, I also do my best to maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. It must highlight to us all the absolute necessity of living a thoroughly consistent gospel-driven life, a life of genuine faith in God, a life of worship and service to God, a life of hope in God because of the resurrection of dead, a life with a cleansed and maintained conscience. You say, how do we maintain our conscience? The moment our conscience convicts us, we go and make it right with God. We go and confess our sin and put it right. It's a life possible only through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is promised to us the moment we believe. Paul's no rioter, no seditious rebel, 
ravaging temples and ruining the peace of Rome among the Jews in all the world. In fact, he's coming and preaching the gospel of peace to all the Roman world. Paul has access into the throne room of the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has access by grace through faith. He has a great hope of resurrection of the just to eternal life. He lives his life striving to maintain a clear conscience before God. Whatever charges they may bring against him mean little to him. For he knows the great truth which he himself wrote. And we're going to read again Romans 8, 31 to 39. I'm just going to pick out some highlights. If God is for us, who is against us? So he wrote. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Yes, they may bring charges and haul us into court and charge us with this, that, and the other thing. And we can see the way things are going in our political world around us. That's going to happen one day soon. But no charge brought against us will stand in God's court because God has declared us just in his sight. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The sword blow that fell down on Paul's neck a few years later did not separate him from the love of Christ. The charges brought against him didn't separate him from Christ's love. Brother and sister, whatever charges they bring against us in this land, in this time, will not, cannot ever separate us from the love of Christ. Don't fear the one who can destroy the body and that's it. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Paul's greatest defense against the unjust, unfair, unproven charges against him is his God-centered, gospel-driven life. Not only the great truth of the gospel, but how the, God, the gospel has radically changed his life. Think back. Once a Christian-hating, church-persecuting, violent, and aggressive man. That's his words in 1 Timothy Acting ignorantly in unbelief, he is now a humble, God-worshipping, God-serving man of God, saved by grace through faith with a cleansed conscience and a great hope. His defense against the charges is his own life changed by the gospel. Which begs the question, doesn't it? How has the gospel changed our lives? How has the gospel changed your life? If you forget everything else I said this morning, don't forget that question. How has the gospel changed your life? Because he stood there, and I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt, he had a calmness and a quietness. I don't think he stood up and used all his oratory abilities to shout like an actor his answer to Tertullus and Felix. I think he stood there in a quiet voice and simply made his defense of his own confession of faith, a confession that would have driven the gospel home to them. Because it isn't just the gospel coming out of his mouth. I think I've told you the story about the, the preacher in Psalm 23. Poor Heather's heard this thing hundreds of times. One of my favorite stories because I find it so personally challenging. An orator comes to a little town in the 1950s and he brings a concert of oration. He stands up before a gathered group in this little small town who had a chance to hear some big city culture. And he wowed the crowd for an hour or more with his reciting of all these great passages, Shakespeare, Homer, you know, the Gettysburg Address, stuff like that. The night's hot and the crowd's getting a little uncomfortable, a little tired, and so he starts to take requests. And from the back of the room, an old man stands up and he says, Sir, would you quote for me the 23rd Psalm? And the orator's a little bit taken aback. 23rd Psalm? That's the Bible. No one reads the Bible anymore. He said, all right, fine, I'll quote for you the 23rd Psalm. And so he begins, and he gives it everything he's got, all his eloquence, all his oratory skill. He, he makes his voice bellow through the room and fall to a hush whisper. And he gets done, and everybody in the room kind of scrambles around their chair to look back at the old man, and the old man rises to his feet. And a voice absolutely cracked and broken with ages, years of preaching. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. 
and a voice that nobody can imagine, not loud, not powerful, but cracked and broken from years of preaching, he recited that psalm. And he wasn't talking to a crowd. He was remembering his Lord. And in 30 seconds, he'd stolen the whole congregation, the whole group. They're all listening to him now. Because it wasn't just words coming out of his mouth, projected and, and eloquent. It was a life lived. And as I stand here and I look at the text in front of me and I think about you guys and, and our lives. And, and Paul's life was radically changed by the gospel. He stood there with a conviction and stated those things as absolutely true. He didn't give a rip what they did with him. He knew for a certainty his life was right with God. Whatever they did no longer mattered. I mean, he knew for a certainty he was going to Rome. Jesus already promised him. But he didn't care. He was absolutely changed by the gospel, and it made the difference to his whole life. Brother and sister in Christ, I want to ask us all again, how has the gospel changed us? It's ruined my Sundays. I have to go to church now. It's, it's ruined my gambling. I can't go play poker with a straight face anymore. It's ruined my drinking and my drugs. It's ruined my immoral, adulterous lifestyle. It's ruined my thieving and, and stealing. It's ruined my reputation with the police. They don't pull me over anymore. It's ruined all these parts of my life. Brothers and sisters, if it's just the words coming out of our mouth... It's not enough. It's got to be a life lived. And you can see it in his words. I want to ask one more question, or a couple more. Is Paul's testimony the testimony of your life? Do you worship and serve the God who created all things, including you? Have you gained access by grace through faith into God's presence? Are you rejoicing in the hope you have in God? Amen. Paul was. My friend, listen, do you have a hope in God for the resurrection of the just and the unjust? Listen, I have to tell you, as the scripture tells me, if you have no Savior to save you from God's judgment, then all you have to look forward to is God's condemnation, and it is an unwavering, unending eternity in hell. But there is indeed hope available. Salvation is accessible to you through Jesus Christ who died on a cross to save you from God's wrath. He died to save you from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin one day. Paul had a great hope of his resurrection of the just because by God's grace he'd been declared righteous by God's grace. Do you have a cleansed conscience before God? Do you have peace with God because your conscience no longer condemns it? You can have it by coming to God through faith in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel, for there is no other way to be happy but to repent and believe. Amen? Amen. Let's just take a moment. I'm going to give you a few moments of silence just to think about your life before we go to the Lord's table, and then we'll give thanks for the elements and partake of them.